Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So yeah, what we uh, want to talk to about today, I've received quite a few emails about it. Um, I even started posting on TikTok, where I get asked on TikTok as well. And it's probably the number one question on prospective immigrants' minds, which is when are express entry points going to come down? Um, we should probably, for those who don't know, just quickly explain what express entry is. It's basically... Canada's largest immigration program where most, well, everyone in express entry is ranked against each other and on a series of, you know, qualifications like education, age, Canadian work experience, job offer, they are ranked against each other and IRCC invites, well, they, they call it the highest ranking people to immigrate through that program. And there is a ranking out of 1,200 points. The points threshold has varied since the program was introduced by the Conservatives in 2015. I remember when it was as low as 415 points. Before COVID, it was around 470 points. And since the pandemic, it has shot up to around 540 points. So I think, is that a bit high? Or it's around there, isn't it, for the general draw? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I don't know if either of you kind of want to 
get into the implications quickly on what that means for people if points go up. It's going to be harder to transition to permanent residence if we stay this high. Um, I think that the people who are going to transition are going to be either the ones who qualify for one of the sub-programs with the creatives of the category-specific draws, they're calling. Yeah, and so they've interested, we'll pause on that, because what, what one thing they've done is introduced category-specific draws. Um, do you want to do just an overview of those categories? So whereas before all occupations were kind of treated the same, now there are these categories that get their own specific draws. Yeah, so the categories are, we got the STEM category, the healthcare stream, the Francophone stream, and I believe there is also an agricultural stream. There's one more, and I forget what the, or transportation. Trade occupation as well, yeah. and transport. Yeah, so the benefit of being in one of those categories is that the points are less for people in those draws, especially the Francophone draw, which I think it dropped as low into the 300s in the most recent draw. I'll pause on the Francophone draws and just get back to the general theme, which is that basically this program is sort of a zero-sum game, right? Everyone is ranked against each other. And why... So, I mean, the first part of the question, why are points so high? It's high because there's these specific categories that are being targeted and if you're not in one of these categories, the points are very high. Like, I don't know, could you describe the sample profile for someone who would need have like 530 plus points? In my list of clients, very few. I'm just saying, I think like most will probably be around the 490 mark. Yeah. Um, 50 points, I'm guessing they either have. Uh, Again, you get extra points for speaking both official languages, which isn't that many people. Maybe um, they have a master's degree, but more likely they have a job offer. And I think job offers are now becoming more and more depend more and more important. Um, the other factor I think would probably be, and this is just what I'm thinking, some of this might just be early in the game. Scores might come down a little bit, but I don't think they're coming below 500 for the general draw. Oh, I'm going to give my theory for why it's only going to get worse in a bit. Um, Deanna sent me a link that I have on the share screen. For those who are watching on YouTube, you'll be able to see. For those who are doing the audio, uh, we'll just describe it. It's the history of recent rounds of invitation. So we can see that, for example, some of these specific draws February 16, 2024, they did 150 invitations for people in agriculture. They needed 437 points. There was a healthcare draw on Valentine's Day, 422 points. A French draw on February 1, 365 points. And then the general draws have been 535 points, 541 points, 543 points. Which is high. Like in my practice, it's people with arranged employment in senior, senior managerial professions is is probably for the most part who's qualifying. I don't know if, if you've seen other profiles of people who qualify for non-provincial nominee draws through the general stream right now. 
Yeah, that's basically yeah. it. Uh, most people are having to go through provincial nominations, which is an option if you live in one of the provinces that has a viable provincial nominee program. And in British Columbia, we are fortunate to have a fairly viable, I mean, it's not it's not that it's not viable, it's, it's, a, it's a more accessible provincial nominee program, but that in itself is becoming increasingly competitive. Um, where it a lot has to a lot has to do with how much you're being paid in the role that you're in. It's that's a very significant factor. It's also based on a points-based system, and so a lot of people are also being locked out of that provincial nomination as well. But the thing to note here is that everyone who's in the express entry system already qualifies as a federal skilled worker, as a Canadian experience class, or as federal skilled trade. So they've already met the baseline criteria for immigration as it stood before the introduction of express entry. So I think people say, oh, I, I meet federal skilled worker, I meet Canadian experience class, I'm going to apply for permanent residency. But in fact, with the introduction of express entry, qualifying, meeting the, the application criteria is not enough. It's now about beating this point and the cherry yeah. picking that happened. And so with this score creeping higher and higher all the time, the invitation to apply for permanent residency is just becoming out of reach to so many. Um, you know, and in provinces like even Ontario, where the nominee system is very much mimicking the express entry system so that really only those who are already likely to get a nomination uh, an invitation through express entry are getting nominations as well it kind of means that for um, i mean uh, we've had many guests who come on the show from ontario who say they have phd holding people fluent in english that because of their age because age is a significant factor on express entry because of their age they just can't get an invitation to apply there's not really any other levers to pull, you know, um, getting selected in one of these occupations is not just about asking, it's about having the experience, having the job offer, having the education, um, having the language test results. And so um, it sort of takes a lot of that stuff out of the control of the applicant. Well, that's kind of where we are right now. And just to build on that point, I mean, I think this is probably one of the other factors where, while Alberta this last week closed the Alberta Opportunity Stream, um, for those who don't know, what you need is you need to have a post-graduation work permit and have graduated from an institution in Alberta or another LMA or LMA exempt work permit and at least one year of work experience. So it sort of mimics the Canadian experience class and the program's now closed because demand just shot right up. Yeah, I mean, that's demand as express entry points go up demand for other programs is soaring. LMIA processing times, labor market impact assessment for foreign workers are also soaring because people who are currently working in Canada don't qualify for these points thresholds, but their employers want to keep them. And so because of that, the number of foreign workers in Canada is going to increase as well. So then there comes the question of where are things going with the points? When are they going to come down? And I've pulled open here. I think we talked about this with uh, Tamara a bit, hmm. but the um, the supplementary levels plan for immigration for 2024 to 2026. And the main numbers to read here is that this year, the target is 485,000. 
of which about 110,000 will be express entry. The number of French-speaking immigrants is supposed to be 26,100, and this is for people who will be not going to Quebec. And what that's where you see, going back to this draw, the 7,000 draw, which is taking spots away from other people, right? Like that 7,000 person draw is equal to pretty much everything else this year combined Hmm. um, in order to hit these francophone targets. Why do I think it will only get worse? Overall targets are going to go up about 15,000 next year in express entry. They're going to increase it about 7,500 while increasing the francophone, the French numbers, by about 5,400. So actually, it may get a little bit easier next year. It's after that into 20, and by barely, right? It's going to be basically what it is now. Where I think it is going to get very tricky is that in 2025 to 2026, the numbers stay the same. 500,000 is the overall target. 500,000 is the overall target. 17,500 for express entry, 17,500 for express entry, 31,500 francophones to 36,000 francophones. Um, And that means that they are going to have to find 4,500 spots for French speakers from other immigration programs. And as you can see here, pretty much all the other programs are also staying the same, except a reduction of 1,000 for economic pilots. But I actually think that that's a typo because that number is not offset by an increase elsewhere and the overall number stays flat. So I actually think that might be a typo and whatever. The But the big thing is that, you know, we're not going to be telling people in the family class, we're not going to be like limiting spousal sponsorship to Canadians who marry francophones. That's obviously not happening. Refugees, it's hard to see where a francophone component would fit in there within the overall numbers of things staying the same. And HNC is applicant-driven. I don't think they're going to prioritize francophone HNCs. It would kind of convolute those programs. So that has to, it seems to me, come from express entry which means they're going to have to take away 4,500 spots in persons from people who otherwise would have qualified for express entry. What that will do to points is it should only increase it further before things get better. I don't know if you have thoughts on my theory. Does that, is there, where, is there something I'm missing in the theory or? I don't think you're missing anything. Sorry, go ahead, Anandu. I was going to say, my one thing is, if you remember, we also had those post-graduation work permitting um, extensions. I wonder if some of those that they filter through will also reduce the number of points people get for work experience in Canada, which is one of my reasons I have is that we might see a bit of a drop. Because there's less students, you mean? Well, there's going to be fewer, like, if you remember, during the pandemic, they kept extending people's work permits. Um, my theory is some of that is also contributing to the points inflation as that filters out. I don't see the draw numbers dropping below 500, but I see them getting closer to the lower 500s. So, I mean, that's the, uh, 
so that's the, the the possibility for optimism would be that there's less temporary foreign workers in the pool looking to apply. It could yeah, be. and there I mean, may I also be on the student. longer than that for the postgraduate work permit attrition to come because they only stopped extending those in this past year. They will still have permits through the next year. Um, and for many of those people, um, in my experience, those, those that are currently employed, um, some employers are extremely keen to keep those people and will transition them from an open permit to an LMIA-based work permit. I think that the, the gap, the, the sort of disconnect that we tend to be seeing is that the demand for temporary foreign workers and the, um, the intent to offer a pathway to permanent residency, they're, they're, the, the numbers don't match. And so the department, I mean, and this began during the Harper government, began saying that there was not an, in, there was a recognition that um, not all temporary residents were going to have a pathway to permanent residence. And that was a theoretical at that stage, but we're really seeing this hit now um, that many people, even though they've come to Canada, they might have obtained degrees in Canada, they might, you know, speak English well, they might have job offers and Canadian work experience, there is no pathway for them to apply for permanent residency right now. I don't see that shifting. And so I know that they're now intending to cap the number of students coming in, they're intending to cap. Um, but, it, but ultimately, I think that the labor market shortages still exist in certain sectors and people are still applying for foreign workers to come. And if the numbers um, can, you know, if that continues to be the case, then I think that um, the question is whether or not those people will have a pathway to permanent residence. So I don't see, I think that you're going to replace apples with oranges, but there's still going to be a lot of workers here um, looking for a way to remain and for employers looking for ways to keep people on a more long-term basis and they're all going to want to to regularize their status and so i think that that that's going to continue yeah it's something is going to have to sh i mean the other they keep introducing like new open work permit for iran open work permit for turkey they broaden the francophone okay. like whether though and then the i think masters and postgrads are getting five year or longer or they're getting sorry lot three-year uh postgraduate work permits now so we'll see i mean i see your point amandeep that the i mean that would be the only way to do it like the only way the points would come down is if the number of um basically international graduates or foreign workers entering the system is less or is is less if the reduction in that number is less than the spots being taken away for francophones yeah i don't see it but i've you know as we commented on our uh, 2024 predictions episode most of our 2023 predictions were wrong so it <laughs> uh, it remains to be uh, it remains to be seen okay. um you know yesterday there was a british columbia uh lawyers meeting where actually which amandeep hosted where people were talking about how this was changing their practice um, and especially the push on francophones. I don't know if you saw, I mean, I tweeted about an hour ago that the IRCC Twitter account is running advertisements to try to get 
francophones from abroad to immigrate directly to Canada. And I commented, like, there are people in Canada who can't stay, as Deanna commented. How how has this impacted, like, what are you telling people? Well, I'm telling people, people who are abroad and be more honest with them and just say, look, you can get the, like this was a pathway previously, which was, you know, Canada education, working with permanent residents. That was a pathway previously. It's no longer a pathway. And I mean, this probably for me started years ago when they first started giving additional points. I'm increasingly asking people up front, oh, do you speak French? Do you have French as a second language? Even the mobility of French. Um, and increasingly, I think that's becoming more part of my guidance process. Um, aside from that, I mean, at the end of the day, most of the people are not going to, like, I mean, this program is specifically designed outside of Quebec. So folks still speak English. Um, yeah, I feel I like think... that gets lost in a lot because whenever I comment on it, I always have people replying going, well, yeah, it's for Quebec. And uh, that's a very good point, which we haven't touched on. This program, Express Entry, is specific, and all of these targets for francophones is specifically outside of Quebec. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be using their French in any way once they arrive in Canada. Um you know, it's uh, um, so I'm not sure in terms of the community building approach that we're trying to to elicit here, whether or not it will even have any effect in terms of building French speaking community, because it's not about, um, you know, it's any yeah, people are just looking for ways. And um, and so, you know, somebody studying furiously to get their French levels up to the to the to the mark required in order to shoehorn themselves into this category. I'm not really sure that this meets the objective of trying to build French communities in Canada. Yeah. And the other thing which may impact points, of course, is at the latest of next year, there is going to be an election. Um, if the here federal... or south of the border? Federal. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. That, <laughs> here. Yeah. You know, that the south of the border, depending on the results, could impact that as well. We had, we called them the Trump UGs in 2020. Yeah. Um, and that was that during was a COVID. Real thing. Been... Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, I had like, oh, that became a whole complicated thing because it was during COVID and they couldn't just wait out the election up here without a work permit. Yeah. But no, the federal, the Canadian one as well, um, mm -hmm. where if the liberals win, you know, some may speculate that the 2026 pause is only an election gimmick. So, you know, it, maybe that changes. I don't know what the conservatives immigration platform will be. They haven't really said their numbers. Um, but otherwise, absent that, I don't. Are, are we in agreement between the three of us that like it would it would be very surprising for points to go below 500 by twenty. 26 or before 2027 i guess yeah i don't see them going below 500 um yeah agree because even what amandeep said i totally agree that that will eventually have an impact the reduction of of postgraduate holders but it's going to take a while for those work permits to um to peter out the other thing i mean i also think what the government's will target will change as well with the federal election um if the Liberals win again, I don't think they're going to change the targets, but I can see the Conservatives possibly shifting um, what industry they target. Could be. I mean, when the Conservatives were last in power, I mean, it was a different, it was like 
10 years ago almost, overall targets. Like if they, if it will be interesting in this election to what extent targets plays a role because obviously if overall targets come down, then points will go up. It's hard at this point to, again, um, Pierre Polyev hasn't really said what his uh, immigration targets will be. He, he seems to be this week, you know, trying to decide how to restrict Canadians' access to pornography. So we're not, we're not on the same. <laughs> it's not nowhere near. But I mean, immigration, you know, looks like it will be. I think an election issue. It always is. I mean, I shudder to think, honestly. But um, I think that. One one thing that I keep remembering is years back when we were talking about transitioning to this like um, by invite only system, is there was top of mind this conversation about the creation of a temporary residence underclass, and you know using the situation in Europe as a cautionary tale, um, not wanting to create this whole group of people who were here, who were create part of the fabric of our, you know, of our working world, but had no way to become citizens. Um, and, uh, you know, I would love to refresh that conversation, which is always hard to do in the political environment because yeah. we tend to look forward and never back. But um, I do feel that that's where we are, um, especially because, um, you know, whether or not there's an intent to shift now with respect to the temporary residents who are here, they are here, they have this experience, they've made this investment, they have created children and relationships yeah. here, you know, and so, um, you know, the, the question is, what do we intend to do about it? And these numbers that you're showing make abundantly clear there is not a path for all of those people to come. And that can only be remedied at the political level. I'd love to be a fly in the wall at liberal caucus meetings because I cannot imagine that liberal MPs, especially in British Columbia, enjoy having to tell their foreign worker constituents from India, China, Bangladesh, wherever, that they probably won't be able to immigrate because we're targeting francophones from abroad. Even yeah. to the extent like that may be overstating it, but that's there certainly are. I mean, there's, you know, every francophone who's outside Canada when they get an invitation. Um, and I, and I've ran like some of the numbers you could, a retired couple in their eighties, if they both are francophone and have master's degrees would have qualified for the most recent express entry draw with no intention to ever work in Canada. Um, Whereas somebody who came here as a teenager, finished high school in Canada, got a, got a degree in Canada, has now been working for a year, speaks English fluently, has a job offer with support, but it's not at a, a senior manager level. They will not. <laughs> and so yeah. again, it's like um, when you look at it from that profile demographic kind of perspective and you're telling those clients day in day out i'm sorry as things stand right now there's no pathway to permanent residence it's uh, yeah it's and really it's not easy i think for any of the opposition parties to be critical of it because it's nuanced this distinction between people heading to quebec and francophones elsewhere and it's not hard to see criticisms of the francophone target being spun as criticisms of Quebec and French people. So 
I don't think there's an easy solution. You got to run? I have to run. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm sorry to miss the rest of the conversation, but I will yeah. watch it. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Why don't, yeah. Do you have any I'll final thoughts say, on this topic? And then we'll shift to uh, citizenship. My other thing would be, uh, if we do see a change in government, I think some more criticism of having a lot of temporary residents might actually start to move the surface as people start saying it's too hard to transition from being a temporary resident to a permanent resident. I think that would be more potent. I mean, temporary residents don't vote. So it's, no. that's, uh, but they're employers. It's just, it's, um, it's hard. I really don't, uh, I think it is way too hard to predict. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's hard to predict at this point what the conservatives will campaign on. I mean, there's so many assumptions, right? It's did the liberals freeze immigration as an election thing? Like in order to say, hey, we're freezing it because increasing immigration has become unpopular. Or do they plan on sticking with that in 2026? They may campaign on some. I mean, it's hard to see them campaigning on an increase um, at least before 2027 the conservatives i don't know yet like polyev kind of has to walk that line between i mean he's talked about making foreign credentials easier to recognize um he has to walk that line between probably what the base wants which is less immigration versus whether he's a libertarian and yeah i, I think it's too so we'll have to wait to see what the uh if they can pin him to a number, the media seems to have done a better job lately of having pinning Polyev to specific positions. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, citizenship. You wanted to recap the uh, big citizenship by descent decision. Yes. Yeah, so it's like a pretty big decision. We're talking about uh, Trump refugees. I find <laughs> usually when the Republicans are in power, this picks up in interest. Um, but Canada struck down the second generation limit to Canadian citizenship. So, the way it currently works is if you're born after 2009 
or before most people born before 1977, if you're born to Canadian parents who were themselves born outside of Canada, they cannot pass on their Canadian citizenship. And some... so, yeah, that, uh, that's been struck down as unconstitutional. Yep. Be... Um, surprisingly, this is a ruling by the Ontario Superior Court of Justice. I think that was the person that stood up for me, but... It reminds um... me of when, on the issue of uh, habeas corpus, um, I can't remember the name of the decision, Chinna, they went through the Ontario court instead of uh, the federal court. Yeah. But this is a very interesting move. Um, it changes things quite a bit for many people because there are a lot of people who sort of fit into this. And I mean, the example I always use is just imagine a situation where you're living in a small town on the border. There is a good chance if your mother went into labor, they might have had to take you across the border to give birth just because it was an emergency. Um, and that was the nearest hospital or a hypothetical situation. You just have, This is a globalized world. People do move around a lot. You were born outside of the country and there's a good chance, despite having strong ties to Canada, your children might also be born outside the country and with a plan to return. Yep, with the second generation limit. I acted for someone once who gave birth in South Africa. So that child was second generation born abroad, so they weren't Canadian. They applied for a visitor visa to bring their baby back to Canada with them. And it was refused on the basis that um, the child, being a child with Canadian parents, would not go back to South Africa, which was when the family came to me to be like, I don't understand. Are we stuck now? Like, Canada won't let us bring our kid home yeah. and we're not South African. So like, what are we going to do here? <laughs> uh, and ultimately we were able to contact a program manager and um, get the kid to be able to come back. But it's an example of, I think, one of the unintended consequences of the law. I pulled up yeah. the decision here. Now it's important to note that the new law is not, whatever the new law will be is not yet in force. And the judge listed some possible different tests that Canada could implement that are similar to tests that I guess the United States and the United Kingdom have, or in Australia, which I'm not an expert in any of these tests. Um, but it, so it's it, right now, you know, if you're a second generation born abroad, the new law is not yet in place and we don't know what the new test will be. The government has six months from December 19 to uh, to make a decision. And they said they're not challenging it. Um, the one thing I did actually write a blog post on CBA years back discussing like something for the second generation beyond based off the US one, which one thing that it protects a situation where somebody has very strong ties to Canada, but just happens to be born in the second or subsequent generation. Um, that yeah, and that's be... what all these tests are like. It seems yeah. like there's substantial connection tests yeah. that other countries have. I mean, I worked um, at the political level when the government. Oh, I don't know if it was when they. No, it wasn't when they brought in the limitation on citizenship by descent. But it was when uh, Israel and Lebanon were at war in 2006, and there was a lot of resentment over Canada having to evacuate second, third, fourth generation Canadians who had never lived 
in Canada. I shouldn't say third, fourth. I don't actually know if there was third, fourth, but multiple generations of Canadians who had never lived in Canada, which was then why they brought in the restriction. And of course, as you pointed out, it had all these harsh consequences. Yeah. Um, and so we're we're likely going to wind up somewhere in between no limitation on citizenship by descent, strict second generation, and wherever it meets in the middle. I don't know what it'll be. And the other thing, I, mean, I think part of this was, was, I mean, something which we forget is the Section 8 of the Citizenship Act, which was repealed in 2009. One of the things that required was that Canadians, that the people born second and subsequent generation had to sort of apply to retain their citizenship. That was actually the other reason why it was removed. It was um, because a lot of people were just losing it at the 28th birthday. They're forgetting, oh, I have to do this retention application. Yeah. So that's going to be another factor in all of this too, is whatever they do, it can't be something which is could be taken away. It has to be vested at birth. Nope. A lot of stuff for the, a lot of stuff for the government to have to ponder. We'll come back to this uh, topic once, yeah. once there's an actual announcement from the government I'm really not sure what they'll do. Like if I, if you wasn't because, uh, so the government has six months. It's not clear to me what happens if they don't meet that. Cause isn't one of the issues with, uh, ugh, made, what is the acronym? Medically assistance in dying. I think that's what made stands for the, uh, medical assistance in dying that like they have continuously kicked the ball down the road for when they're going to figure out how that works for people with mental health disabilities. And I'm pretty sure they're past the deadline that was imposed on them and Carter. Um, So I don't know what will happen here if they don't meet it, but hopefully it doesn't come to that. I think they have two choices. Um, Choice number one is they can go back to the court and they can ask the court to say, well, can we get another six month extension? I also should probably note there's Bill S-245, which actually was meant to address the situation. Um, there's an amendment which is put on Bill S-245 to allow for a second and subsequent generation. Now, what's happened is this was a conservative bill passed in the Senate, introduced by a conservative MP at the House of Commons. Um, and that conservative MP had refused to bring it back up for a vote ever since the amendment was imposed by the committee. So... Some of this might be political games to just try to get this passed because it just needs one vote in the House of Commons and one vote in the Senate to pass. Um, but there is already a mechanism in place within one of the amendments. I don't remember which it was, but to give citizenship a second subsequent generation. So lots to watch for here. I mean, you can see this is going through. Uh, it's in committee, as you mentioned. Yeah. So, Still in consideration. Yep. Yeah. And it needs to come back to the House for the third reading. Interesting. Um, we will see. We will see where it goes. The uh, the other topic that I wanted to hit on was there's another podcast. There's a law, a law podcast that I listen to uh, called Maximum Lawyer, which is a neat. It's just an American law podcast, and they were talking about they had an episode called "The Five Signs That You Are Not Taking Being a Lawyer Seriously," and I don't know why the episode stuck with me. And I was like, I don't know if I agree with what's being said. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to get another lawyer's thoughts. You're a solo practitioner, right? Yes, I am. 
do you have assistants or why don't you I actually have... i don't know like how long have you been uh why don't you give the the, the 30 second summary of your sure. well i mean i started in alberta so i practiced there for about two and a half years and then i moved over here and i was like he was married to die for a while and last year i went solo what well, at the end of 2021 or two yeah i went solo um because I've been sold for a little over a year. I do have one assistant who works with me. And I also have, I've had one more, but since then, so downside just one. Yeah. So, well, and then as a, so as a solo lawyer, and I'm not sure if these, like, I mean, the episode was about five signs that you're not taking your solo lawyer thing seriously, but this could arguably apply to any lawyer. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on these. I don't think we have to do more than a few minutes for each, but we'll see where the conversation takes us. Um, and I'm curious as well, like definitely listeners, if you have thoughts on this, do let me know. And five signs that you are not taking your solo lawyer thing seriously. The first is that you answer your own phone and you don't have all of your calls going through reception. And what they were saying was that clients expect a receptionist, it's more professional, and answering your own phone shows a lack of time management. Do you agree? Well, the first few months I did answer my own phone. <laughs> uh, but now, no, it goes straight to my um, receptionist. Um, Do you I have a direct that... line as well, or...? I don't have a direct line, um, yeah. although KJ will give some of my clients my cell phone. It's usually wants to need me when they're entering the port of entry. Um, but for the most part, it goes straight to a receptionist that I've hired through my co-working space. Yeah. And then they take messages. Um, I'm not sure about this one because I, I can see what they mean because if I was, if I didn't have somebody else answering my phones, I would basically be answering phones all day. Yeah. And that's a lot of work. So for me, I usually budget time in the day to return my phone calls. So do you do that more because you think it's what clients expect or because for you, it's just to help with time management? Help with time management. I don't think. Yeah, I think I agree. So we have direct um, numbers, extensions. We don't post them. I don't even know if this is still accurate. If we don't post them on the website or not, if you call reception, there's a switchboard where it will give our direct number. I typically don't give my cell phone out um, just again to manage the uh, the number of calls that come in. I, like you, don't think that clients would look down on a lawyer who gives a direct number. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I think some clients would appreciate it too. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's like, I, I feel like anytime a client is calling the direct number instead of through reception, it's because they want to talk to you. Uh, number two was you have a non-professional email account. You're a lawyer and you use Hotmail or Gmail. Thoughts? So my dad's a lawyer, actually. And he uses <laughs> Gmail. <laughs> yeah. um, my opinion on this is it's not critical. Well, it's, I'll say it this way, and this is probably context dependent. If you're an older lawyer, I'm not surprised if you're using Gmail. It's just not as familiar with tech. I don't think it makes you look like a bad lawyer. Just you're not as familiar with tech. Younger lawyers, I would strongly recommend that you have something with your domain name. I think so as well. And it's easy if you have a website to just make your domain for your email the website. I 
I just wonder with data storage, who has access to the data with Gmail? I don't know the answer, um, but that's the only the only concern that I have. But then I also wonder, like, you know, this. I mean, Google might not be like able to access other emails, but surely the government. <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's <laughs> well, if you think about it that way. I don't know. I think the government can access those other email services too. Uh, unless yeah, you have your right, own private right. email server in your office, yeah. chances are you're using something for your backend. Yeah. What about like Proton Mail or something that you know is strict end to end, or at least on that end encryption? Would you view that different than Gmail? No, and my no. understanding is that Gmail is encrypted too. Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah. I think most email now is encrypted. Okay. Um, number three, you meet with potential clients at Starbucks or a coffee shop and you don't have an office where you can meet clients. That's an interesting one. Um, I actually did meet a client at a coffee shop, but a new one or an existing, no, a new one. It was introduced to me by a lawyer I knew in Calgary. Um, so I met the lawyer in Calgary and myself and the client there, um, I don't think it's kind of unprofessional. That being said, if you're talking, this was a corporate client, we just generally introduce and engage, know each other. If you're talking about things which should be privileged and you're doing that in a coffee shop, I have questions. Yeah. It's, if you're just um... saying, I, my name's Evan Peter, I'm a great lawyer, hire me for these reasons, that's a different story. I'll always remember once that I went to a client's office that was uh, a tech company and it was all open office space, all open office spaces. And I walk in and I'm like, okay, well, are we going to have an office where there's complete privacy? And they're like, nope, nope. At our company, everything is, uh, everything's shared. Everything's open. There's no secrets here. And I went, are you really? And uh, do you want to talk about this? Uh, in front of everyone yep it's um you know i don't care if people can hear we're open and i got as far as okay so about your criminal record and it was an immediate pause <laughs> we got rushed into like some little side room and i i was just like okay like yeah so like you wouldn't want to now that being said i have had I, I don't know if i've met new clients I, I mean i'm sure i've met new clients at coffee shops at some point i just don't remember i have done form signing at um at a coffee shop i remember once meeting with a client in blaine on the way back from seattle with my uh wife where i don't remember what she went off and did but i met a client at a restaurant in birch bay because we were just the signing of the forms was not working like remotely and i needed to be there to be like here 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 for a rehab application so the guy couldn't come into canada so I've done stuff like that, um, and I don't think it's unprofessional. No, I don't think so. I think it's I mean, business and critique does happen at coffee shops. So, yeah. You number four is you lower your fee when pressured by potential clients. I don't know. I don't think I usually do lower my fee when pressured. Um, I do know if I know somebody struggling financially, I might give them a little bonus rate, but. Is that when you set your, like, would, would you have learned that before you set your fee? Yeah, I think uh, I learned that before I set my fee, but usually, yeah, when I 
charge with what I charge. Um, I don't know if that shows in professionalism. I mean, it's also context dependent as well, right? So yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Um, so like their argument is, um, if you lower your fee to the client after you've set a fee, then they'll think that they can boss you around and that you're able to boss around. I don't know if I would buy that. I also think that if the fee you set at the start is fair and reflective of work, that generally I won't lower lower it because like, you know, you want to feel, you don't want to enter as the lawyer, I think, doing the work, feeling that you're being shortchanged or that you're unhappy um, with having lowered fees. Yeah. I can see particularly lawyer, younger lawyers who are first entering the profession still trying to get clients doing this, but yeah, it does lead to some resentment later on because... Yeah. And then like the other, I mean, so for that younger lawyer, um, what I would often caution is like, you know, assuming that you're not super struggling to get clients is that the work that you're doing at that lower rate that you may not be happy with the opportunity cost is the ability to go get files that you will be happy with. And that's hard, right? Like it's, I think everyone struggles with that. Like if files aren't coming in, you feel like you've got to take what's immediately in front of you, then the unknown. Um, but if you bet on yourself, I, I think more often than not in the long run, you're better off focusing on building up and getting the files that'll make you happier. Yeah. I, yeah. The last one, you practice in more than one area of law. I think it depends on the area of law. I mean, if I saw somebody's doing criminal immigration family, I would be go asking a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, but if it's like business and real estate, I'm not asking. That's pretty normal. Or That's the thing. And with litigation, and... where there's like 10 areas that they litigate in, um, yeah, I don't, uh, I mean, there is that, like I do sometimes when I go to a law firm, I don't think it's unprofessional, but when I do go to a law firm website and I see that someone practices in like 10 areas as opposed to possibly 10 subject matters, like 10 actual distinct areas of law, I think to myself, what do they actually do? Like yeah. I, when I started immigration law, people are going to laugh when they hear this, but when I started immigration law, I was also taking the, um, the step course, which is the Society of Trust and Estates Practitioners, because I thought I might do, you know, this was young, naive Steve. I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll be an immigration lawyer, a tax lawyer, and an estates lawyer. And looking back now, I'm just like, oh, um, like, like, I don't like, it's hard enough to like learn one, let alone like three. And even within one, I mean, I, this might be unique to immigration, but I don't know about you. I don't try to do refugee law, and there's a lot of immigration yeah, yeah. I look at it, i'm like i'm not touching this no Here's even like um like even there's i've done probably there there definitely are provinces who provincial nominee programs i've never gone near and i actually refer it out like i don't um yeah it's uh there's enough in like even within the scope of just solicitor immigration practice that uh trying to like Everything gets very... Do you worry about that sometimes? Over-specialization? Sometimes. Because I'll I tell mean, you this, like when COVID hit, well, I'll tell you, like if you are if you only do study permits, I don't know what you're doing right now. 
Yeah, um, <laughs> I do worry about that sometimes. But that being said, one of my specializations is litigation, and there's always work in litigation. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's just the way it is. But there are times I wake up and go, am I over-specializing? But I think it's probably for the better. Yeah, the over-specialization, I, it really... I, I do think within immigration, like, so I can think in the time that I've been practicing, uh, in 2012, the conservatives implemented refugee reforms. And I remember a lot of refugee lawyers leaving the area. Those who stuck it out probably now are busier than ever. The, um, the other group that was hit was a, at the start of COVID, definitely uh, people who were over-specialized, actually on appeals. I know some lawyers who focused on IAD appeals and the IAD was basically shut for like four or five months. So they were, but yeah, in terms of like, um, that could be a whole other, a whole other topic on picking which areas to specialize in. Yeah, Those are the five that these guys had. Are there any like red flags that you also identify like in your own that you can think of when you've been thinking to refer? What are your thoughts on lawyers who don't have websites? I'm surprised these days that lawyers don't have websites. Even older lawyers mostly have websites. Um, I find that one tricky too because I'm always like, I'm referring, unless I already know the lawyer, and I can't think of many who don't that I know who don't have a website. Yeah, and I'm thinking I really have no idea like who the person is beyond like lawyerlist.com. Yeah, I mean, I know there's a few good lawyers I know who don't have websites, but they're again they're on the older end of the spectrum. They basically are sort of seniors yeah um i think red flags for me i usually look for have there been any sort of issues with loss i think that's usually my mm -hmm. biggest red flag Otherwise, that one i go back and forth because like there's how do i put this some of the law society sanctions are for what seem to be very technical applications of trust accounting that I don't think from a client service perspective are that detrimental. And obviously it's important to be compliant with trust accounting rules, but as to whether the person is a good lawyer, I, I guess I would read it because then you also read the decisions where it's like this. I mean, there was an immigration lawyer who took $400,000 from a client that obviously is not, uh, not good. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on the trust accounting. Um, it's there are a lot of technical rules where I think again, yeah, I'm going to be looking to see what the issue was. Um, the other ones, I mean, you know, a lot of lawyers by reputation, you meet them all the time. Mm -hmm. and I think you generally get a good idea where they are, where they stand. Yeah, that's a yeah. I think like, and that's through me. That's part of the importance of like CBA and things like that is that you do learn um, kind of who people are in the area or, and you know who to reach out to, to be like, Hey, like I need a uh, criminal lawyer in Australia to provide an opinion on something. This isn't hypothetical. I actually do need a criminal lawyer in <laughs> Australia. So if there's anyone listening who knows a good criminal uh, defense lawyer in Australia, please email me. Um, but yeah. And like that often is through word of mouth because it's hard, right? You go to websites, um, referrals, you know, through people, you know, is probably still the best, 
good flag. Um, I can't think of any other red flags that immediately leap out. Yeah, there's not many. Um, I think even, I mean, despite the reputation lawyers have sometimes from the media, most lawyers do practice quite ethically, I think. That's... And yeah, it's a, it's a definitely a hard, a hard working group. Oh, here's one last one. Um, Google reviews, lawyers whose firms don't have Google reviews. Um, again, do they get them? That's yeah, the question. right. Like that's and Google can go the other. Like I've been asked before, like, oh, I'll leave a Google review for a discount. And conversely, I'll, you know, uh, I may leave a negative review if I don't get a discount. Um, so Google reviews are an interesting, interesting beast. Yeah, and uh, you can see, I don't think any firm has perfect reviews. Um, I have heard that the perfect reviews are something that you want to be watching out for because it might suggest they're padded. But no, I don't think Google reviews are uh, also an indication. Um, there might be something I'll take into consideration, but... I uh, reviewed a retainer agreement that a person once signed with a consultant where there was a clause that stipulated that a Google review was required upon approval. So <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting to see the different practice. We'll have to do more practice management type uh, episodes. They are, it is always interesting to see kind of what people, uh, different thoughts on it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. No problem. Uh, it's been, it's been fun. Yeah. I enjoyed this. Yeah, we'll have to. Well, when the citizenship decision comes down, we'll have to have you back on, like to go over what's been decided. I'd be happy to do that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.